Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Glad to be back with you again live this week. You remember last week we actually had a pretty devastating computer crash. And uh, we, uh, when we got back up and running, or maybe I should say up and limping, <laughs> last Wednesday, uh, it was determined that we would rather um, run the Bishop Strickland show that had been preempted because of the crash. So, But any, in, in any event, I'm glad to be back live and uh, got a lot to share today. Uh, on Facebook the other day, somebody shared a post from a Franciscan brother that showed a picture of a, of a young fellow, maybe about a 12-year-old boy, who, having received Holy Communion in the hand, was proceeding to dip the host into the chalice of precious blood offered him by a, a layperson. Uh, and brother included the comment, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas said, out of reverence to the sacrament, I mean the Holy Eucharist, Nothing touches it except what's consecrated. Therefore, the vessels and also the hands of the priest are consecrated to touch this sacrament. Unlike, we might mention, the hands of lay people, uh, whether they be the communicant or, or the extraordinary minister. And you might think, you know, it's like, oh, well, it's just one more of the tragic liturgical abuses among the countless offenses against our Lord that regularly occur at the celebration of the Novus Ordo. And you'd be right. But uh, what I was struck by is a couple of comments on the post. And the first person, first common commenter, uh, asked the, the person that shared Brother's original post, why do you continually put stuff like this up? Do you like hanging out dirty laundry? Most people know what's right or wrong. Of uh, being, uh, quote unquote, pharisaical for putting up that picture without having first exhausted every possible avenue for its correction. Invoking, you know, Matthew 18, if you have a problem with your brother, go first to your brother. Although it's <laughs> this situation almost certainly didn't happen at a parish of the person who shared that brother's post, nor is it clear what, if anything, this person, I mean, the person making the accusation, has ever done to combat liturgical abuse. Instead, you know, his overwrought response takes that kind of shoot the messenger approach that's so common among low information Catholics. And as for his contention, most people know what's right or wrong. The fact that this picture was taken in a church with a priest standing right next to the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion who was committing the abuse, at least at this parish, most people do not know what's right or wrong, especially regarding liturgical practice. And in a parish where such an egregious abuse is tolerated, if not encouraged, you can be sure that it's only one of many. All right, the other comment that struck me was a fellow responding to the first comment, and he identified both the abuse exposed in the original post and the comment we just read as, quote, the reason I became an Orthodox Christian and left this all behind, unquote. Well, frankly, both of these responses are nonsense, and they represent a false dichotomy. Either pretend that everything is fine in the Roman Catholic Church or throw up your hands and get out. Now, in Symptomatic of a disturbing trend amongst some traditional slash conservative Catholics today. The proliferation of, of prevalent abuses, not to mention policies that are being promoted by the present pontificate, and yes, I know that was a lot of P words, uh, even some serious Catholics find themselves seriously tempted to abandon ship from the bark of Peter. According to a recent statistic, for every one person who becomes Catholic this year, six will leave the church. 
Now, for most of these people, that probably means abandoning the practice of religion altogether. But amongst the traditional slash conservative Catholics, it often means either going set of a cantist, right, denying that the Pope is really the Pope, or like this guy on Facebook, embracing formal schism by leaving the church for an Orthodox communion. And that's really tragic because souls are in the balance. You know, I read about temptation the other day in The Imitation of Christ, and Thomas Akempis said, inconstancy of mind and little confidence in God is the beginning of all evil temptations. So before we ask what should we do, we should carefully consider what we already know. What do we know? Well, we know from 1 Timothy 2.4 that God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The church teaches that God will grant sufficient grace to all who sincerely desire their salvation. We know that holding fast to the Catholic faith, having and exercising the virtue of faith, is an essential condition for salvation. Hebrews 1.11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We know that the Catholic Church is indefectible, that is, she cannot fail. The church will last until the end of time, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. However, we also know that the church may be reduced to a remnant. And further, with regard to the church, anything that is not incompatible with the promises of Christ can, in fact, happen. No matter how unlikely it might seem, no matter how unpleasant it is, no matter how difficult it is to accept. And we also know, and this is kind of the crucial point, the church teaches dogmatically that it is necessary for every Catholic to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Uh, Scott Hahn was on Pints with Aquinas recently, and he mentioned how throughout the, the many centuries before modern communication, there were times when many people did not know the identity of the Pope. You know, for example, that the, the Pope perhaps had died and the chair of Peter was empty, or that he'd already been succeeded by another Pope and the news had not reached them. Now, somebody might wonder how those Catholics remained subject to the Roman pontiff when they didn't even know who he was, much less what he was saying, you know, from day to day. And the answer is that the will to be subject to the Roman pontiff suffices because the essence of subjection lies in the will. So we can remain subject to, to the Roman pontiff even during an interregnum when there is no pope in the chair of Peter. All right, further, we know that it's impossible for the Catholic Church to substantially change her teaching. The deposit of faith was complete with the death of the last apostle. So while doctrine can develop in the sense that our understanding of a doctrine can become more explicit, or in other words, what was already official teaching can be further clarified, we know, and we know this from, you know, most recently Vatican I, that such clarification can never contradict what was taught before. This is a dogmatic teaching. Therefore, a contradiction is not a legitimate development. It is instead a corruption of the teaching. Therefore, we know that a teaching that was true in the past cannot now be considered false under the pretext of a deeper understanding. And while doctrine can develop in this very narrow sense, dogma cannot. Once a teaching becomes dogmatic, there can be no more legitimate, quote-unquote, development. 
What else do we know? We know that our situation today was foreseen by God from all eternity and that it is being allowed by his permissive will. Which means that what we're going through today is part of the divine plan and not contrary to it. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That cannot change. He also said the way to heaven is not the wide and easy and, and, and feel-good way, but rather that following him requires picking up our cross every day and following in his footsteps along the narrow and difficult and thorny path. The cross has always been a requirement of the true religion, and to remain a faithful Catholic today requires carrying a heavy cross indeed. And really, this shouldn't be surprising. Getting to heaven is bound to be harder when everything's going to hell. But no matter how heavy our crosses, God does not abandon us, but he will sanctify us through them, and he will provide all that is necessary to enable us to do his will, no matter what the challenges. We know that towards the end of the world, there will be great spiritual deception and a great apostasy. Jesus says in Matthew 2.24, for there shall arise, uh, that's 24.24, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders inasmuch, insomuch as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, this, that verse was part of last Sunday's gospel in the extraordinary form which was the, the final Sunday of the liturgical year. Now, in, in so much as to deceive, if possible, even the elect, he said. Hence the temptation I spoke of earlier. Either to refuse communion with Francis because you deny that he's really the Pope at all, or to reject the doctrine of the papacy and join the schismatics. But like it says in the imitation of Christ, these temptations, like all such temptations, proceed from inconstancy of mind, or lack of confidence in God. Let me ask you, how hopeless do you think it seemed, humanly speaking, when Christ gave up his spirit on the cross? And yet it was God's will that this greatest of all crimes, this, this worst of all blasphemies, should be the price of our redemption. The one worthy sacrifice that would merit all the graces necessary for the salvation of the world. That our blessed Lord's apparent defeat should be the key to his eternal victory. And it may not have looked like it at the time, but the cross of Calvary did not result from God's plan for our redemption being contradicted, much less prevented, but rather perfectly fulfilled. By the sacrifice of the cross, Adam's sin of disobedience to God was perfectly atoned for by the obedience of Christ. And that is no nonsense. Okay, you know, I, I would mention, too, that on Monday of this week, Bishop Strickland issued an open letter in which he made a passionate plea that Catholics not leave the church. The church, he says, is undergoing her passion. We're going to talk about that, what it might mean, and lots more when we return with No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Right before the break, I mentioned that Bishop Strickland invoked that uh, that uh, image that the church is undergoing her passion. And that sentiment has been expressed to me often uh, ever since I became Catholic. I mean, a quarter of a century now, I've been hearing that the church is undergoing a mystical passion. And it seems like whatever the current issue, it tends to be identified as her crucifixion. But I, I think there is another episode of Our Lord's Passion that might be more applicable to the current situation. You know, I was thinking about this the other day, and I recalled that uh, on my last visit to Quito, Ecuador, back in 2017, I made the Stations of the Cross at Our Lady of Ransom Church. And like, you know, many of the churches in Quito, or all of them, I suppose, it's just magnificent structures that's uh, uh, decorated in the Baroque style that was popular from the early 1600s to the middle of the 18th century. And the paintings of the stations there are larger than life, quite a bit larger than life, and, and brutally graphic, as was the custom in Spanish Baroque art. And I, I remember, uh, actually, I was reminded of Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of the Christ, because, you know, while it was an innovation for a film to depict our Lord's passion so graphically, Gibson was really following this older artistic convention. Anyway, the tenth station of the cross is Jesus is stripped of his garments. And as we know, the blood from the wounds of his scourging would have begun to, to dry and stick to his clothing so that when the soldiers uh, pulled his garments away, it would have reopened all those wounds. Um, and as in the movie, the, the brutality of it was, was shockingly portrayed in this huge painting. And I was uh, following the stations with the meditations and, and you know, an old prayer book. And uh, the meditation there said, Jesus was despoiled of his garments that he might die possessed of nothing. How happy shall I also die after casting off my evil self with all its sinful inclinations? And the correlation is simply this, just as the stripping of Christ's garments was painful, likewise, to overcome and the sin in my life, especially in habitual sin, to strip myself of my evil inclinations is, is an agonizing process. To give up, you know, whatever you've put your, between yourself and Christ is hard. It hurts. But think of the reward. I, Bishop Sheen used to say you can't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday, which is really a matter of, of, of trading some temporary pleasure for eternal happiness, which, you know, when you think about it, it's a pretty good deal. But for years, people have been telling me the church is undergoing her, her mystical passion, and whatever we're going through is, is, is identified as crucifixion. But the fact is that the suffering that we're undergoing now is primarily a self-inflicted wound. Unlike Christ, we're not sinless, innocent victims. I believe that all of the attacks on the faith, especially those from within, are not so much a crucifixion as a stripping of the garments especially the, the post-conciliar garments of moral laxity and religious indifference and liturgical abuse. You know, at the very beginning of the, of the modernization of the church, even before the Second Vatican Council, Pope Pius XII said, all the evil in the world is due to the easygoing weakness of Catholics. And that's no nonsense. Okay, so St. Vincent of Lorraine says the church grows stronger when she's persecuted, even if she's reduced to a remnant. And just a few years after Vatican II, uh, Joseph Ratzinger predicted 
that the church would be reduced to a remnant, but it would be stronger as well as smaller. And why so? Why you do the math? Uh, you know, if, if only the faithful Catholics stay, then the church is going to be more faithful. And as I've said again and again, progressive Catholics do not beget more progressive Catholics. They beget non-Catholics. While traditional Catholics, on the other hand, beget more traditional Catholics. And in the you know current reality, we may not have the numbers yet, but we are growing while they are shrinking. And according to the prophecies of Our Lady of Good Success, things are going to get worse before they get better. But she identifies, or I have identified, I guess, in my understanding of those prophecies, these three qualities that will be possessed by those who stand firm in the worsening crisis of faith. Number one, they're going to be devoted to our Lord Jesus Christ, and especially in the Holy Eucharist. Number two, they will be devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And number three, they will embrace their faith rather than just inherit it. Uh, I, I hope next week to, to look at St. Vincent Levern, the many things that he had to say about piety and tradition and what to do when the church is persecuted and even what to do if the majority of Catholics should embrace novelty and error. In fact, here's a little taste. He said, what then shall a Catholic Christian do if some novel contagion attempt to infect no longer a small part of the church alone, but the whole church alike. He shall then see to it that he cleave unto antiquity, that is tradition, which is now utterly incapable of being seduced by any craft or novelty. Well, not long after my conversion, I was talking to a, a liberal priest about some, uh, some matter of biblical interpretation. And, uh, and he asked, well, where did you get that idea? And so I quoted my source, and he said, and I'll never forget it, he said, well, that's your problem. You should never read anything written after Vatican II. As if the, the Catholic faith of today is something different than it was before the Council. Now, I don't believe that, but there are a great number of Catholics who do, including theologians and religious, and priests, and bishops, and cardinals. And this attitude is reflected in a great deal of post-conciliar books and other materials, especially those um, geared to a popular level. This is what Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic of rupture, to treat Catholic belief and practice as if Vatican II was, in his words, a new start from zero. Now, obviously, rather than take seriously the advice of that progressive priest, I preferred and still prefer to follow the advice of Alfonso X, who was the 12th century, a 12th century king of Aragon and Navarre, who said that uh, you should, quote, burn old wood, drink old wine, read old books, and have old friends. And I agree, and I include amongst my old friends the fathers and the doctors and the saints of the church. So to the point, to keep the faith, one must first know the faith. And I believe, following the advice of St. Vincent of Lorraine, tradition, because they are undiluted by modern novelties, or had he said, incapable of being seduced by any novelty or, or you know, current craft. So for a major reference, Catechism of the Council of Trent, also known as the Roman Catechism, which was the Church's official catechism for over fourteen or over four hundred years, from fifteen sixty six to nineteen ninety two.
too. Also the Catechetical Instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas, which is based on the Summa Theologica. But you don't have to start with either one of those, right? If that seems daunting to you. Remember, Thomas Akempis reminds us in The Imitation of Christ, we ought to as willingly read devout and simple books, he says, as those that are high and profound. Let the love of pure truth lead thee to read. So if you want to know your faith, you shouldn't scruple to start with the Penny Catechism or, or Baltimore Catechism number one. And, and speaking of which, I would point out that the Baltimore Catechism was published in four volumes, the last of which consists of hundreds of questions, almost 500 questions and answers, plus proofs from Scripture and a detailed commentary, All right, and an explanation. So I dare say it represents a far more comprehensive presentation of the traditional Catholic faith than most modern Catholics have ever even encountered. And if you, if you insist on a contemporary catechism, you, you need look no further than Credo, the new compendium of the Catholic Schneider. I know uh, Richie doesn't like me to hold stuff up, um, but uh, here's, I have, a, oops, I have a copy of it here. Try and get that in the same plane as my face. There it is. Uh, and we'll talk about that next week. Also, be aware that Holy Mother Church has given us the acts of faith, hope, charity, and contrition to help us persevere in the theological virtues. And you can make these acts any time, of course, but you, you really should pray them all at least once a day. And, you know, I mean, for, for ease of doing it, I make it, you know, acts of faith, hope, charity, and contrition as part of my morning offering. All right, a final thought on this from the Imitation of Christ about the adversity we face in trying, or we face rather, in trying to keep the faith in difficult times. Our Lord, Tempus, are not all painful labors to be endured for everlasting life? That, that, that puts it right in context, that the, that the issue here is your salvation. It is no small matter to lose or gain the kingdom of God. Lift up, therefore, thy face to heaven. Behold, our Lord said to him, I and all my saints with me who in this world have had a great conflict do now rejoice, are now comforted, are now secure, are now at rest, and they shall for all eternity abide with me in the kingdom of my Father. Amen. It's no nonsense. <laughs> All right, this coming Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. It's, uh, we're entering the Advent season. And as is our custom here, we're going to be looking at the gospel for the next Sunday in, in our uh, next segment. But as a, a little preparation, I want to say a few words about the season. The first Sunday of Advent, also known traditionally as the fourth Sunday before Christmas, is the first day of the liturgical year. Advent, from the Latin adventus, means coming. And this Mass is celebrated to, to prepare us for the double coming of Christ, uh, that of mercy in his nativity and that of justice in his last judgment. That's why the epistle for this upcoming Sunday, taken from Romans 13, uh, St. Paul tells us to cast off sin in order that, preparing for the coming of Christ as our Savior in the liturgical celebration of Christmas, we can also be ready for his coming again as our judge. That's what this gospel for the Sunday is all about. The first coming of our Redeemer was when the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary and was made flesh to sanctify the world by his coming. You know, a Redeemer was necessary because through Adam all have sinned 
and need to be reconciled to God. Although it should be noted that the just under the old law could be saved before the coming of Christ because through the expectation of him, through the application of his future merits, those under the old law, so Moses and the patriarchs, etc., those who made themselves worthy of the grace of Christ by an innocent life and by uh, doing penance could be saved, although they could not be And so they were confined to the limbo of the fathers until our Lord's ascension. The second coming of Christ will be at the end of the world, when Christ will come with great power and majesty to judge the living and the dead. And so the church has appointed this holy season of Advent that we may, well, first off, consider the wretched state of mankind before the coming of Christ, and to bring before our minds the mercy of God, who gave his only begotten Son for our redemption, that we may prepare ourselves worthily to celebrate Christmas, and that we may, we may also prepare ourselves for a second Advent, that he may be to us when he returns a merciful. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. As promised, the gospel for the first Sunday of Advent, this coming Sunday, taken from St. Luke 21, verses 25 through 33. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, by reason of the confusion of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men withering away for fear and expectation of what shall come upon the whole world. For the powers of heaven shall be moved, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and majesty. But when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is at hand. And he spoke to them a similitude. See the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth their fruit, you know that summer is nigh. So you also, when you shall see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen, I say to you, this generation shall not pass away till all things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Well, thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Okay, to give this reading some context, we should go back to verses 20 and following. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword." and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So the, the literal meaning of, of Luke chapter 21 is a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Note that we read, Amen, I say to you, this shall not pass away till all things be fulfilled. A biblical generation is 40 years. Jesus first said these words in the early 30s AD, 
And Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70. So as Jesus prophesied, many of those who were alive when those words were first spoken were still around to see the fall of the Holy Spirit. Venerable Bede says, Hitherto our Lord has been speaking of those things which were to come to pass for 40 years, the end not coming. He now describes the very end of the desolation, which was accomplished by the Roman army, as it is said, and when you shall see Jerusalem compassed by an army, etc. Eusebius said, Our Lord, foreseeing that there would be a famine in the city, warned his disciples in the, in the siege that was coming not to betake themselves to the city as a place of refuge and under God's protection, but rather to depart from thence and flee to the mountains. Bede says in his ecclesiastical history that all the Christians who were in Judea, when the destruction of Jerusalem was approaching, having been warned by the Lord, quote, departed from that place and dwelt beyond the Jordan in a city called Pella. That is why, according to Bede, that our Lord said, woe to them that give nurse or, or give suck in those days, because uh, it, it would be more difficult for them to leave the city in a hurry. Eusebius said, for so in truth it was that when the Romans came and were taking the city, many multitudes of the Jewish people perished in the mouth of the sword, as our Lord said, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword. But still more were cut off by famine. And these things happened at first indeed under Titus and Vespasian, but after them in the time of Hadrian, the Roman general, when the land of their birth was forbidden to the Jews. Hence it follows, and they shall be led away captive into all nations. This this was literally fulfilled by the latter Jewish diaspora, that, that the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem and, and you know, spread around the earth. So what does all that have to do with the final judgment? Well, for that, we turn to the spiritual senses of Scripture, namely the allegorical and the anagogical. The allegorical is the symbolic, and anagogy, anagogy has to do with um, our final destiny or with the last days. Hence, St. Ambrose says, Mystically, the abomination of desolation is the coming of Antichrist, who, with sacrilege, will pollute the innermost recesses of the heart, sitting, as it were, literally in the temple, that he may claim to himself the throne of divine power. What he's talking about? Remember, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. So the Antichrist will try and usurp the throne of that inner kingdom through the spread of heresy and apostasy. Then, says St. Ambrose, shall come desolation, for many, very many, falling away, shall depart from the true religion. Then shall be the day, since as his first coming was to redeem sin, so also his second coming shall be to subdue iniquity, lest more should be carried away by the error of unbelief. And he goes on, on that is, the devil who is trying to besiege Jerusalem, representing the, the soul, with the hosts, that is, the armies, of his lies and blasphemies. When the devil is in the midst of the temple, that is to say, enthroned in the soul, which represents the state of mortal sin, when Christ is re removed from the throne of your life and the devil put in his place, when you fall from grace and into sin, there is the desolation of, of abomination. But when, upon anyone in trouble, the spiritual presence of Christ has shone, and he's talking about sanctifying grace, the unjust one is cast out, and righteousness begins her reign. 
There was also a third Antichrist as Arius and Sibelius and all heretics and apostates who with evil purpose lead us astray. What does all this mean? It means that the true antidote for all our current anxiety about the state of the church and the world is simply to stay true to the traditional teaching of the church, to the doctrines, traditional doctrines and dogmas of the Catholic Church, and to remain in a state of grace. So therefore, by employing the allegorical and analysis of Scripture, the Church this coming Sunday offers the answers to some important questions about the Last Judgment. So what signs will precede the Last Judgment? Well, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from heaven. The heavens themselves will pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with heat, and the earth and all that's in it will be burned up. At the command of God, the world will be shaken to its core, and, and, and fearful storms will arise, and, and the seas and the waves will roar, and wild struggle and destruction replace tranquility and order. And many, and, and again, all of these, all of these things, I, they do represent, I'm sure, natural disasters, and disasters that we bring upon ourselves, but certainly also chaos that comes when you turn away from Christ. Hence, many people will wither away with fear, as it says, not knowing where to run. And then shall appear the, son, the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, which the Father tells us is the Holy Cross. A terror to the sinners who have hated it, but, but the greatest consolation to those who have loved it. Stay close to Jesus, stick with the traditional teachings of the church, stay in a state of grace, and stop worrying about the end of the world. How will the last judgment begin? At the command of God, the angels with the sound of a trumpet shall summon all men to judgment. That's Paul in 1 Thessalonians. The bodies and souls of the dead shall be again united, and the wicked shall be separated from the righteous, with the just on Christ's right and the wicked on his left. Right? That's When he gets around in, in Matthew chapter 25 to talking about what's going to happen on the last day, this is what Christ describes. The angels and the devils will be present, and Christ himself will appear in a bright cloud with such power and majesty that the wicked, for fear, will not be able to look at him, but will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. That's Luke 23, 30. But, you may ask, are, are we not all judged at the moment of death? Why, then, would God hold a general and public just, judgment? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, so that everyone will know how just he's been in the particular judgment of, of every person. Number two, that justice may at last be rendered to the afflicted and the persecuted, while the wicked who have oppressed the poor and the widow and the orphan, who have oppressed religion, uh, and have yet often passed for upright and devout, they may be known in their real characters and forever disgraced. Number three, that Christ may complete his redemption and openly triumph over his enemies, who shall see the glory of the crucified and tremble at his power. And how will the last judgment proceed? The books will be opened, and from them all men will be judged. All their good and bad thoughts, words, and deeds, even the most secret, even those known only to God, will be revealed before the whole world. And according to their works, men will be rewarded or damned forever. The wicked, says our Lord in Matthew 25, 46, shall go into everlasting punishment, but the just into life everlasting. 
And so during the holy season of Advent, the Church reminds us of the coming of Christ to judgment precisely so that we may better appreciate and better profit from his first coming. For only those of us will be justified and glorified who have acknowledged and received him as our Redeemer. Now is the season to ask ourselves, have I really believed in him? Have I really loved him? Have I really admitted him into my heart by doing his will, by keeping his holy commandments, by doing being a, a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Now that's why Advent is traditionally a penitential season, and hence the violet vestments. Now is a time to prepare for Christ's coming, first uh, in mercy at Christmas and soon in judgment, by prayer and penance and good works done with good intentions. And that, my friend, is no nonsense. Okay, um, it's been a year now since the U.S. bishops called for a Eucharistic revival, and there's a, another year coming. And, and this can only be a good thing in principle, of course. But, uh, you know, we, we can see how it's playing out in practice. And, you know, I've spoken about uh, how it seems that, that, you know, kind of pastoral initiatives like this uh, come and go and nothing really changes. So we're going to talk about that and more when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to... No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back. Talking about the USCCB's initiative for Eucharistic Revival, going on 2023 and 2024. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned before the break that it seems like pastoral initiatives come and go and nothing changes because I don't know how many Catholics are even aware of the current initiative or, or, or you know, participating in any way. But I wonder who among even those that, that are can even remember the last big initiative. What was the one the year before? You know, and, and I, I can just, I, I can recall some of these insipid slogans, right? Our faith, our future, together in mission. Let us journey together, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. All, you know, nice logo, professionally printed on four-color vinyl banners that grace the exterior walls of our churches for a year or two, and then they're gone. And with that in mind, I, I want to draw your attention. I actually talked about this in January. I want to revisit it. It was an article from Crisis Magazine by Father John Perricone. Uh, Pericone or Pericone, I'm going to say Pericone if, if I'm wrong, correct me. Uh, his article was called A Radical Proposal for the USCCB's Eucharistic Revival. Now, was a little background, I've often re uh, referred to the Pew Research Study from 2020 on modern Catholic belief regarding the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and how an astounding 70% indicated that they believe the Eucharist is merely a symbolic reminder of Jesus and not his body, blood, soul, and divinity. So in other words, they either don't know the church's teaching on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or they simply don't believe it. And Father Paracone says, the American bishops seem to have noticed this alarming anom anomaly in the past year. Odd that they should have detected this doctrinal collapse so recently, since it's been a glaringly evident for over half a century. 
And actually, you know, the, the revival was prompted by a speech of Bishop Robert Barron that took, you know, uh, at the 2020 Religious Ed Conference. So, I mean, you know, it was three years before they came up with this new idea. Anyway, Father Paragon traces the crisis back to the theology of such infamous characters as Edward Skelebex and Karl Rahner, the whole Concilium Uve, uh, Concilium being the eponymous name of the magazine published by the committee in charge of the destruction of the liturgy. And he says, uh, he did, those are my words, not his. He says that all of their dissenting theology would have wound up so many dead letters gathering dust in some college library, but for the two-pronged spear of liturgy and catechesis. And I've said many times the crisis of faith rests on liturgical abuse and the crisis of catechesis. According to the article, quote, so thorough was this transformation of Eucharistic theology that well-meaning Catholics now confidently call the Mass a meal. And under this logic, it is quite hostile to refuse anyone access to the Holy Eucharist. Not a few bishops growl at a priest, even publicly repeating their traditional requirements for the reception of Holy Communion. Which just brings us back to the bishops and their call for this Eucharistic revival culminating in a Eucharistic Congress next year. And the question I asked a year ago is, of what will this Eucharistic revival consist? Just articles, videos, meetings? See, the thing is, the faithful didn't need, or they did out of their belief in the real presence. It took a change in practice to bring it about. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. And, and nothing short of a significant restoration of liturgical practice, at the very least, the strict implementation of Redemptionis Sacramentum is going to make a dent in the current climate. Marketing, which is all the, the revival has offered so far, is not going to cut it. For his part, Father Perricon made four radical proposals. And let's see if we can, how much we can talk about these in the, in the minutes remaining. I'll just uh, synopsize them now. Number one is return the tabernacles to the center of every church. Number two is abolish communion in the hand. Number three, eliminate extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Oh, Father, from your mouth to God's ear. And number four, that uh, kneeling to receive Holy Communion be, to, should be mandatory. So let's take a quick look at these proposals one at a time. The first is probably the least controversial, but the, would be the most difficult to accomplish because in many modern churches, uh, it would require remodeling. And that's returning the tabernacles to the center of the church, which is to say uh, to in the sanctuary above the main altar. Like most liturgical innovations, there wasn't any mandate <laughs> and there was certainly no need to remove tabernacles from the altars. But wait, wait, isn't that in Vatican II? Well, in a word, no. What Vatican II said regarding the tabernacle and Sacrosanctum Concilium is enshrined in Canon 938. The tabernacle in which the Eucharist is regularly reserved should be placed in a part of the church that is prominent, conspicuous, beautifully decorated, and suitable for prayer. Now, that would certainly, could certainly be construed as, as confirming the status quo and, you know, regarding the placement of the tabernacles in most churches. But the innovators discovered in it a, a mandate to move the tabernacle off to the side, outside the sanctuary, or into another room altogether. And I remember when our former parish uh, refitted the proposed cry room into a Eucharistic chapel, and we were building a new church. You know, it's, and, and it was just this small 
spare room at the back of the church that contained nothing but the tabernacle and a few stackable chairs. I mean, they even frosted the glass of the window that looked into the church so you couldn't see it. Understand, the tabernacle could not be seen from anywhere in the church. Okay, so so much for prominent. Furthermore, it was entirely unadorned, so no beautiful decorations, because no decorations of any kind. And no kneelers, of course, so hardly suitable for prayer, especially Eucharistic adoration that requires kneeling. And yet when it was complete, uh, you know, our Monsignor from the pulpit invited us, you know, take some time to stop by and pray in our prominent and beautifully, prominent and beautifully decorated adoration chapel. Because apparently symbols are, are even are no longer the things, you know, the, the only things that don't have meaning. Words themselves have no meaning anymore. Now, Father Paracon in his article said liturgists may not abide by the inescapable laws of the natural symbol, but ordinary folks do. Number one, put the tabernacle back where it belongs. Second proposal, abolish communion in the hand. And Father rightly condemns this practice as an undisguised rupture with a millennial tradition, which has deeply implanted a reflexive understanding of the Holy Eucharist. Because Father says the traditional practice effortlessly conveyed to all alike the, the sacredness of the sacrament of the altar. No words necessary, no, no explanation is required. Thus, he says, the immediacy of the symbolic act, informing, uplifting, impassioning. You know, I've got a catechism from the early 80s that portrays the novel practice of communion in the hand as, quote, a restored option. But there's no compelling evidence of any kind that communion in the hand was ever a universal practice in the church. And if it ever was, the one thing we know for sure is that it was universally abandoned everywhere in the church, both east and west, more than a thousand years ago. And now that we live in a reality where the majority of Catholics don't go to Mass at all, and 70% of those who do no longer hold the faith, perhaps we can see why communion in the hand was forbidden. Uh, number three, eliminate extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Now, Father said that to the common Catholic mind of today, a suggestion such as this sounds like the abolition of the Ten Commandments, uh, which only goes to show, he says, how pervasive is this common misunderstanding regarding the doctrine of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He says, quote, that the fact that few Catholics refer to extraordinary ministers is further proof of the tight grip of this doctrinal misunderstanding. And of course he's right. The extraordinary minister is properly referred to as an, ex an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, never as a Eucharistic minister of any kind, extraordinary or otherwise. And yet how often are they just called Eucharistic ministers? Only the ordained are ministers of the Eucharist. Remember back in the first segment, we, we shared the words of Thomas Aquinas about only that which has been consecrated can, can touch the host. Hence the corporal and the chalice and the priest's hands are consecrated. Even the new teaching regarding lay ministers says that they're only to be used in cases of absolute necessity. You know, perhaps a, a parish with no priest, where there's nobody else to take communion to the homebound. Or, or at a mass that's so crowded that communion would take an unreasonably long time. You know, the only mass that I ever, ever go to that's crowded like that is the traditional Latin mass. And everybody kneels and receives on the tongue. And we have two priests uh, giving, you know, distributing Holy Communion in the traditional manner. 
and it works out fine. No EMCs necessary. None need apply. See, but the thing is that those cases of necessity, that's altogether different from what I've seen again and again with my own eyes, where a small army of, of you know, maybe six or eight extraordinary ministers troop into the sanctuary to distribute communion to maybe 40 people at a daily mass. Extraordinary Maya and Agnes. Uh, lastly, his fourth proposal is that um, the reception of communion should always be kneeling. You know, in the last few years, according to Father, we've seen a veritable war waged on the few Catholics who do follow what he called the crystalline interior logic of Orthodox Catholic doctrine, kneeling to receive Holy Communion, right? Those who try to attempt that at the Novus Ordo. He says that those who seek to keep the faithful from kneeling for communion try to justify it on the grounds of uniformity or quote-unquote local custom. But Father says even the most naive Catholic sees this for what it is, for the naked dissembling that it is. One stands to grab a free lunch, not to receive the bread of angels. And all these problems came about by bishops doing things that shock the faith of Catholics. And so, so what do they have to, to lose, right, if they risk shocking Catholics by reversing them, by restoring the traditional practice? I would suggest to you the only thing they have to lose is the crisis of faith. And that's no nonsense. All right. Uh, before we go, I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, a week ago we had a, a, a catastrophic computer crash. And we've had to replace, you know, the, the computers that melted down. Uh, and that it, uh, Terry informs me it's going to cost the apostolate something like an extra $5,000 this month. And so I want to ask you if it's within your power, uh, if you could make a special donation on our website or, you know, just go to vmpr.org and click the donate button, or you can call the office toll free 877-526-2151. And, and please just give us, uh, if you have a little something to spare, um, and you, if you enjoy these programs, Please uh, do what we what needs to be done to keep them on the air. Also, the end of the year is coming up. Uh, December is going to be your last chance to make it. So if it's possible for you to donate this time, be assured we'll really appreciate it, as we always appreciate your prayers as well. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.